0: They grieve for the children that they've lost. I talk to mothers who will never hear their daughters' voices again because their daughters have taken testosterone, and they simply don't sound the same. They'll never look at this like feminine face. They'll often these girls absolutely hate their parents and their mothers and have been sucked into a cult. You know, there's nothing uh, there's nothing that more aptly explains what transgender ideology is uh, besides a cult.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my very special guest this week, Kelly J. Keene, also known as Posey Parker. Kelly, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's always great to have you on. I think this is your third time, maybe your fourth time. It's your a returning guest, which which we love. And There is a lot for us to talk about right now. So you will be known to many, many people as one of the, I think, one of the finest defenders of women's and girls' rights against the transgender ideology or the transgender lunacy, however we decide to refer to it. And uh, I want to start off by asking you whether you think the tide is starting to turn on all this stuff. So, on the day that we're recording, uh, it's been revealed that Maya Festata has won her claim for discrimination. She was discriminated against on the basis of her gender critical beliefs in her workplace. So, she's won that case, and that sets a really good precedent for women in work who want to actually talk about biological sex and the reality of sex. Also this week, we've had Macy Gray, who I love, coming out and saying that just because you lop off your bits doesn't turn you from a man into a woman. We've had Bette Midler saying sensible things. And before that, we've had Sajid Javid and Suella Braverman, former and current government ministers uh, as we speak, uh, making sensible noises as well about pronouns and uh, the problem with giving transgender treatment to children and all those kinds of things. So given that you've been working on this issue for a long time and trying to push forward the sensible viewpoint, do you think it's finally catching on? Do you think the tide is turning or is there still a lot of work to do?
0: I think there's a lot of tidying up of this nonsense. I think that's uh, what needs to happen now. So the right people have made the right noises. You know, Bette Midler has been a darling of the woke in the United States for a very long time, um, for her to say something uh, like, oh, I don't know, we're allowed to be called women, aren't we, boys? <laughs> um, and for the misogynist kind of abuse that she's now received, I think more than her words, the response to her words will be quite revealing for many people and it will enable more people to speak up. government ministers making noises. That's great. I always find it a bit weird. If you're the boss, if you're a government minister, that's sort of, I thought you were the boss, right? (laughs) So I find it quite (laughs) odd that they go, well, I will recommend, I will recommend that we actually call women, women. You're like, can't you just tell them? Can't you just say you will call women, women? Um, But look, this, this climate of people being able to speak up has been created by many, many women speaking up repeatedly at, at sometimes great cost. Um, Maya Forseta, for example, she lists, uh, me to be a modest, uh, but also Helen Joyce, Magdalene Burns and other people in, in her sort of where she found her courage to speak up in the first place. So yeah. Yeah. as I tell all the people who watch my channel, who come to Speaker's Corner and, and anything that they mustn't for any moment uh, disregard their own contribution to adding droplets to this tsunami
1: so uh, I really agree with that and I think the I want to get on a bit later to talking about some of the tensions within the gender critical world um, because I think they're very interesting and I don't just want to talk about them so that we can moan about people but because I think there's (laughs) something fruitful for us to untangle in all of that Uh, but before we get on to that One of the things that concerns me about some of the current developments, even though they seem quite positive, is that it does sometimes look like one step forward, two steps back, which is not because of a failing on the part of women like yourself who are making a very strong case for the right of women to use the words they want to use, to have their own spaces, to stand up for themselves using real language and telling by telling the truth. It's not because of a failing on your part, but because the the other side, the woke side, the trans side is so... Vociferous, still. So, so just to take the mm. example of Bette Midler that we've talked about. So, what she said was, "Women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even of our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators, and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you." So that was a really strong comment, and strikingly very similar to things that you have been saying for five plus years. So I'm glad that's all catching Mm -hmm. on. But at the same time, as you say, there was a horrendous backlash, a horrendous misogynistic backlash. Bette Midler has been called a stupid old hag, a dumb bitch. I mean, really the kind of typical misogynistic insults that are used against women like her. So is it a case that more and more people are sticking their heads above the parapet, but the institutionalization of the trans idea continues and is still a problem.
0: Oh, it definitely is. I mean, the United States is so far gone. We can talk about <laughs> Biden leading some of this, but I don't think he could he could lead anything into anything. To be honest, <laughs> he doesn't really seem to be in charge of himself, let alone the country. But whatever levers of power are, are, are operating in the United States, there is an absolute will, uh, to push this ideology into, uh, the bodies of children, uh, the brains of every single adult across the country. So for her to speak up there, Mm. I think it's really brave. I I don't know that she knew exactly what, I think she thought she was being reasonable. And I think what will happen, hopefully what will happen, and I, I don't mean personally for her, but for the fight that is going on in America is that she really thinks, okay, so I'm not allowed to say something reasonable, fine, I'll just say exactly what I think. You know, if I can't even say this very small, reasonable, rational, normal, like, why can't we call women, women comment? um, I hope that really opens her eyes and lots of people's to what is going on. But the the response is grotesque. Mm -hmm. And they are emboldened by the idiocy that is going on in the White House. I I mean, I watched her... I can't remember what it was. It wasn't, Biden hadn't been in office very long. And there was like a promo about essentially transitioning children uh, by the White House. And you had, you had inane grins, like evil. It just looked like evil. Um, People laughing along about how it was so courageous and brave and how they were so happy to promote this idea of trans kids.
1: Gross. Yeah really gross. And I think what the Biden administration is doing is extraordinary. And the fact that it's, as you say, this doddering old man, 79 years old, that he has embraced mm-hmm. this ideology or, or someone in his administration has embraced it is actually quite chilling in terms of what it tells us about how high up this stuff now goes but on the issue of grotesque responses to to women talking about themselves and their rights i want to ask you about your own recent experiences with your let's women speak events uh, one in manchester and one in bristol both of which were um attacked essentially by uh, baying mobs of misogynists some of them many of them wearing black masks shouting obscenities and uh using misogynistic language uh, the videos are so disturbing the ones that i've seen really horrendous stuff it's remarkable to me that these people think they're on the right side of history mm. but i want to ask you two questions in relation to those events firstly what is it like to be in the middle of a mob calling you the f word the c word a fascist and all those other things so describe that what that's like for us and then also do you think it's beneficial ironically to your cause because more people will see just how deranged that side of it has become.
0: Well, from a PR point of view, it's exceptional. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's everything I could ask for and then some. I'm five foot one and then I've got massive blokes (laughs) screaming in my face as I walk through, um, often smiling because it literally is exactly what I want you know what what are the optics I mean often on this side of the debate we're told about be mindful of optics well a I don't ever agree with that I think it's ridiculous not to carry on and move forward with what you believe to be right just in case the optics are that the opposing irrational nonsensical uh, idiots on the other side say something about it so I've never really fallen for the, the optics game but I do think if I was a trans activist, I might think a little bit more hard <laughs> about whether or not it's a good idea for a big blokes, big, and I'm, I'm going to guess that these are big straight men because mm. there was something really quite heterosexual about their energy and these big straight men screaming in my face and calling me really hideous names, telling me I should be afraid, um, using, expressions like you should be home looking after your kids. I mean, it's Mm. just, it is a gift. Um, What it's like being in that space at that time, I don't know whether I'm some sort of sociopath, but I don't feel afraid. Mm. I really don't. Um, I think, I'm going to sound really pious, but I'm more afraid of what happens if we don't change the course of this particular path. I've always been more afraid of being silent than speaking up because, the staying silent has got us into this mess in the first place, and in the United States where the silence is far more uh, it's far more sinister and mm. uh, really quite powerful, uh, they've managed to get away with taking kids out of parental homes who aren't affirming uh, like a ten year old's gender so i'm I'm more than happy to Invite these men to come along and show themselves up for the misogynist that they are. I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. They ha- they always have my invitation.
1: Yeah. And I think your lack of fear, as you describe it, probably winds them up even more. They they cannot believe that a woman is not backing down when they scream in her face because maybe they're used to that happening in other situations. So I, I, I find that the lack of fear is probably... Another great weapon in the armory but uh, on this issue of these violent and threatening counter protests that you have experienced and also the violence that has been um, hinted at in relation to someone like JK Rowling for example who has received another death threat uh, on Twitter where someone published her address next to an image of a pipe bomb and instructions on on how to to do that kind of thing I wanted to ask you about who is to blame for this? Now, in my view, in all these kinds of instances, the only people to blame are the people who are carrying out those actions. So the people screaming in your face are to blame for what they're doing and the people issuing death threats against J.K. Rowling are to blame for what for what they are doing. But there was a really extraordinary double standard because if you look at trans allies in the media, they say that any time that you or people like you criticize the the trans ideology you are making trans people less safe you are erasing them you are contributing to a culture in which they are threatened and so on but it never seems to apply to them so it's never the trans allies fault who might call JK Rowling a fascist and say that she's a dangerous woman and she's disgusting and she's horrible and all those other things it's never their fault that she then gets threats and she then gets these menacing tweets and and you get similar as well so there's a real double standard there but i just wonder i wanted to ask you to what extent do you think the culture of intolerance in the mainstream including in the mainstream media contributes to the kind of insanity that you sometimes experience on the streets and and at your gatherings
0: well i think this whole idea like right, silence is violence and and words are violence and i think some yeah. of those ideas come from places that i should need to feel more comfortable but you know words aren't harmful words are just mm. words And when we try and equate that with violence, as soon as you use the word violence uh, with expression, then you really are inviting there to be some sort of parallel. So then the bad words that I say, according to some, can be met with actual physical violence and threats. So I, I think that actually has got a great deal to contribute. I mean, I just remember Nigel Farage having a milkshake thrown at him. Um, and everyone sort of thinking that was fair game because they didn't like what he stood for. Yeah. Well, actually, it transpired that a lot of people did did really like what he stood for um, and what he <laughs> was advocating. So it's a really dangerous line. And I think those people that sort of talk about words as violence, um, I don't. I'm not advocating violence here, but I do think if you have a punch in the face or someone says mean things, mm-hmm. I think you can really tell straight away <laughs> which is actually harmful and which isn't.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, on the issue of words, uh, I've said this to you before on a few occasions. One of the things on which you have changed my mind. So, this is one of the great benefits of freedom of speech and open debate is on the issue of pronouns. And when I first met you a few years ago, I was of the view that out of politeness, one should use another person's preferred pronouns. And I have completely changed my mind on that partly because of the arguments that you made in response to me, and also partly because it's so clear now that if you give in to those aspects of the trans ideology, that you're giving in to the entire nature of it, which is that people can define their sex as they choose, they can say what they are, and more importantly, the rest of us have to bow down and accept that with no questions asked. So just explain to us why you were so adamant on the pronoun thing Much earlier than other people. And have other people come to you like I have and said, listen, you've changed my mind on this. And I will now stop referring to men who think they're women as she and her. Have you had a, uh, have people made that point to you?
0: Uh, Yeah, many, many, many times, if (laughs) I can be totally immodest. But yeah, because look, for me, if you use any female language at all for a man, you then cease to be able to talk very plainly about what is really going on. So if I say she's in the changing room naked, then we're not totally clear that actually it's a bloke in the changing room naked in a female (laughs) changing room. It's much more difficult if you address somebody as female. It's much more difficult to say, you know, she's not allowed to use the women-only spaces. Uh, That's why we get, even the word trans woman, I think you get into a cul-de-sac where you then have to go into the merit of what is a woman. Well, we know what a woman is. Um, I often find it quite irritating when I have to listen to somebody try and have an intellectual conversation about a man and a woman, and why somebody who calls himself a woman is not a woman. It's just, it's like saying, if you walk into the ocean, you're going to get wet. We don't <laughs> have to intellectualize why that is mm. the case. We all know it to be true. And so I think sometimes people try to have these lofty, ethereal conversations about these concepts. And we just need to get back to basics. We all know, you know, I'm a heterosexual woman. I'm pretty sure I know what a man is. I'm pretty sure I'm attracted to men um as a heterosexual woman nobody ever needed to tell me exactly what a man was mm. in order for me to know who i fancy
1: <laughs> uh yes that is and that will be the case for most most people out there mm. they know what a man is and they know what a woman is and they would th- as you say they would think it was a ridiculous question to even ask what really is a woman on that question i did want to ask you about the labor party i mean i know Right now, everyone's talking about the Tory party because they're falling apart. And uh that is interesting, I suppose. But I want to ask you about the Labour Party and their inability to answer the question, what is a woman? Keir Starmer infamously can't give a straight answer to it. And you've we've even had the utterly bizarre situation where uh, Labour politicians have floundered in response to the question, can a woman have a penis, which in my mind is the easiest question in the world to answer. What do you think that tells us about Labour and the left? And what might it also tell us about gender-critical women's attachment to the left and the question of whether that's the right place for them to be if the main party of the left can't even say that women do not have penises?
0: I think what it says is that Labour are ultimately dishonest. I mm. think anybody that says that I think is a liar. Um, I absolutely don't believe that some of the main politicians, Sella uh, Creasy, Keir Starmer, I really don't believe that they think women have penises. I think yeah. they're, I think it's a lie. I think it's a dishonest lie. And if they can't tell the truth about that, how on earth could I believe anything else that comes out of their mouths? I think it's cowardice, and again, I don't want to politi- I don't want to elect somebody into uh, any seat of power where they have no courage whatsoever to speak the truth when it matters. I mean, this really matters. As far as the Labour Party goes, I think it comes down to. I mean, look at the trade unions; they're so they're all so misogynist, and I hate using that word because misogyny sort of gets overused. And we talk about misogyny as a wolf whistle and, uh, you know, as opposed to maybe a little bit of sexism and slightly inappropriate behavior. I think misogyny often is is used really too much. Mm. But in this case, I do think that uh, a hate of women and a, a non-recognition that we are fully fledged humans in our own right, we are not men without penises, I think the Labour Party just keeps delivering, knocking us over the head with that message. And it sort of makes me think everything else they've said up about women up to this point is just about getting elected. It's just about being, uh, arguing with the Tory party and isn't really anything about having respect for women if they don't even know what one is. So I think for women, we are, I don't know where we ha- where, where we put our ex. For me, I I... I uh, did vote conservative in the last election, but that's because my Tory MP is phenomenal. Uh, and the other choice was Helen Belcher, who's a man who calls himself a woman. <laughs> Liberal <laughs> Democrats and Labour were nowhere. So I really <laughs> had no choice. Um, but for most women, what is the choice? It's it's a rock and a hard place. There, there's no party that genuinely ste- seems to stand up for women but at least, the, well, the Conservatives need to be Conservative, right? Then at least we know what we're voting for. And at the moment, they don't seem to have any clear plan about what they can be. And that is made so much worse by the fact that Labour have been so atrocious. We need in this country, every country always needs a really effective opposition. And we haven't had one for a long time, which is why we've now got a government that can't really govern.
1: I'm always amazed when people sound sheepish, not that you just did, but when people sound sheepish or embarrassed about having voted for the Conservative Party in 2019, which I did as well, given that the Labour Party at that time was not committed to enacting the largest democratic vote in the history of this country, which was the vote for Brexit, was confused on lots of issues to do with trans and wokeness and uh, other uh, rather regressive ideologies that I think are harmful to women and communities and social solidarity, uh, the idea of voting for Labour in that election filled me with complete dread. And um, I was perfectly happy to put my cross Temporarily next to the Conservative Party. And I'm now perfectly happy to say that the Conservative Party has turned out to be rubbish and not very, not up to the task that I expected them to do. But that's, that's life, I guess. So on this, you said there's something interesting, which is that you don't. Really like using the word misogyny, and I completely understand what you mean. I mean, there is obviously so much misogyny in the trans l- movement. I mean, I've I referred to it. I've referred to it before as misogyny in drag. It does seem mm. that if you want to slag off women, then you just if and you're a bloke, put on a dress, change your name, and then you can do it with impunity. And I've been really struck by. You know Macy Gray, the abuse that Macy Gray's been getting. And what we've had is white men in wigs telling this black woman that she's a bigot because she said what she thinks a woman is. And you just think identity politics has become really quite wild at this point. But I wanted to ask you about another word in relation to misogyny, which is the word feminist. And I've always been intrigued by your reluctance to use that word to describe yourself. And I wonder if you could explain why that is. Is it because you think feminism leaves a lot to be desired or does that word just not work for what you're trying to do? What is it about that word that that makes you feel that it doesn't really work for you?
0: Gosh, it's all sorts of things. So um, it's quite personal. So when I did call myself a feminist, a lot of women on the left who called themselves a feminist who believe that they own feminism, Mm. uh, started saying, well, you're doing this. So you're not a good feminist. You dye your hair, you wear makeup, you're married, you stayed at home with your kids. Therefore you're not a good enough feminist. And I was like, "Right, okay, fine. I'm not a feminist. If I'm going to be criticized for things I do within some sort of parameter that I haven't signed up for, then I'm happy not to, I'm happy not to call myself that anymore. Additionally, you've got feminism. That's like Beyonce in, in very little clothing. Bent over in front of a big light that says feminist uh, with her husband fully clothed behind her. (laughs) So uh, it started to become some sort of marketing tool. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also you have pro pimp, pro prostitution, uh, pro trans men as women, people that call themselves feminists. And then you even have quite an anti mother Mm -hmm. sentiment throughout feminism. And I believe, as I'm a mother of four, you know, what is it? 80% of the women in the world become mothers. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite an important aspect of being female. Now that might even be if you choose not to have children, being a mother, not being a mother still occupies much of what we do, many of our conversations and how we're viewed. And so for feminism, and I get why it did it, it basically decided that in order to rid uh, the shackles that women felt they were bound by, which is motherhood, Um, And I think feminism did view it as shackles. Then we had to sort of be anti-mother. But you can't square this circle. What is it? I'm either dependent on my husband and I stay home with my children, or I'm dependent on the state and I stay home with my children. But there is no way in a society in which you need money to survive. Uh, There is no no way I can raise children and not be dependent on someone. Mm -hmm. And so... I get why it did it, but I just feel that feminism is has not been great for mothers and motherhood. It te- keeps telling us we're wrong to depend on someone, and I, in some respects, I feel it's a bit anti-family. Yeah. And I'm really pro-family, not in a badly characterised, like far-right Christian American <laughs> way, um, family values, but very much that. The healthiest situation to raise children is with, in a home with both their parents where possible, you know, and, and clearly women don't have to stay in a relationship that's terrible for them. But I do think that adults have a responsibility once you have children to try and make your relationship work and you work your backsides off to make sure that your children grow up with the best possible outcome. Yeah. So I'm a terrible anti-feminist.
1: Yeah, you're basically, that makes you a bigot. All those views that are held by vast numbers of ordinary people are now incredibly Mm. unfashionable. And that leads me on to another, maybe a difficult question, but like you, I understand why feminism existed. The first wave of feminism in terms of getting the vote, uh, the second wave of feminism in terms of the right to work and the right to sexual pleasure and all those things that That happened. The third and fourth waves, I'm not such a big fan of, and I think that's when feminism really starts to go down the rabbit hole of identity politics and eventually even the trans ideology and all of those things that are very clearly anti-woman. But I wanted to ask you on that note, isn't there a danger now that feminism ironically is anti-woman? And what I mean by that is that there is sometimes a tendency in some sections of feminism to see, as you have just outlined there, to see certain women who decide to have children or who decide to stay at home for a period of time, to see them as somehow letting down the sisterhood or, or failing in their duty to be female revolutionaries of some kind. But also there is this, there is a tendency sometimes to depict women as fragile and as needing the scaffolding of censorship and and state intervention to keep them safe all the time. Whereas one thing that I've always admired about the gatherings that you organize and the movement that you are a key part of is that there is that rather fearless engagement in the public realm with your critics, with the people who don't like you. You don't need the state to hold your hand while you're doing that. So, All of those things taken together, is there a danger that feminism has lost sight of uh, what is positive about being a woman and has sometimes veers into being uh, anti-woman in the way it approaches issues?
0: I think there is a danger. I think there is certainly an element in which uh, women are made to feel helpless Mm. I think some of the second wave feminism was all about, here's an obstacle, how are we going to bash our way through it? And now it feels like it's, here's an obstacle, let's all talk about the obstacle, let's whine about the obstacle, let's try and, well, not even overcome it. Let's just tell everyone that it's there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I do think there's, and the word victim is used a lot. Um, I recently was on a, in fact, it gets cropped a lot and put on Twitter as a, a sign that I blame, a victim blame. But I was in a a discussion on Facebook in which I said that I think the way to help women out of domestic violence situations, uh, the thing that we could teach is to recognize the first signs to enable w- women to trust their instincts. Mm. Because I think actually most of us know when something is uncomfortable and what we then do is we rationalize that discomfort and tell ourselves we're being impolite mm. Or we're thinking too much. And I actually think, no, do you know what I mean? Run like hell. If you feel you're <laughs> under threat, run like hell. That's what you do. And if you're wrong, then at least you're in the safety of whatever it is. And you can be wrong there. And that's a lot better than being right. <laughs> Having, uh you know, being punched about yeah. or being treated yeah. badly. And I was told that was victim blaming. Now, I kind of think that's protecting oneself yeah. and escaping harm. But no, uh, that's victim blaming because actually the only person to blame in a situation where there is domestic violence is the person perpetrating, which of course it is. But I would like a car always to stop when I'm about to use a zebra crossing. I still look both ways and make sure the car stops before I step out. doesn't mean if I get run over that it's not the car's fault. It just means that I can do some things to prevent a situation from happening. And I think that's what we need to empower, well, everybody to do. But certainly when we're talking about um, women in coercive relationships, in sexually coercive relationships, which I think happens to young women more than young men, I think that is really important that we teach girls that if it feels wrong, it probably is.
1: Yeah, and there have been a lot of controversies over the past few years where, you know, men have been told off for saying that, you know, I tell my daughter to look out for herself and don't get the bus home on your own and don't go off with a certain bloke as if, You know, the argument is that, well, you should be telling the bloke not to do certain things, not telling your daughter to avoid danger. But that's a perfectly reasonable thing for a father to say to his daughter Mm. that he's concerned about. And then you have people like Chrissy Hind, for example, from the Pretenders, who got into a lot of flack a few years ago because she said that she was sexually assaulted and she really regrets putting herself into a certain, into the situation in which it happened. And she was accused of victim blaming too, whereas the point she was making is, you know, sometimes women should extract themselves as quickly as they can if they sense that something is wrong. And all of that seems to me to be perfectly reasonable advice. But just on the issue of feminism, I want to ask you how you do describe yourself. Maybe you don't use any word at all, but I think you've used the word womanist before unless i'm I dreamt that but i, I um it, is there a word I mean you do talk about standing up for women's rights and girls' rights and particularly their rights to use the correct language and to have their own spaces and their own sense of safety and so on is there a word for that kind of movement do you like the word the, the phrase gender critical does it need a word or do you just you just know what it is and that's enough?
0: Well, I think gender critical means that there is something valid called gender and I don't Mm, think there is. And I think there are biological sex and there are some things that are sort of biological sex roles that are both endorsed in society, but also do come from somewhere. Uh, The fact that my hypothalamus becomes incredibly active when I'm pregnant and I'm going to have a baby and I can make sure that baby survives. I don't think that's the only place that my acute uh, or more acute sense of nurturing, uh, will occur as a female mammal. My dogs have puppies and I can, t- and we've got both of the, the male and the female parents. And I can certainly tell you which one, which one the female was when the puppies were little. <laughs> and it certainly wasn't the one just going to potentially cock their leg on one of them. So I think it's, it's a, a little bit dreamy that there isn't some essentialist behavior to our bi- connected to our biological sex. So I came up with this word, although it's not my word, um, but I thought I'd reappropriate it, which goes against kind of everything I've ever done. Um, And that's feminist, which it's just about the centering of females. And it doesn't require reading because we all know what a woman is and we all know what a female is, but it it just means that that's what we're focusing on you know as i said about gender critical i don't think gender is a thing i think that's something invented by what john money um, who actually was a horrible man and i'm not having i'm not having somebody pretend that there is some disconnect between okay. our bodies and how we feel about ourselves yeah. i think it is the same thing and so gender then it leads on to all of this nonsense that somehow there's a place in one's biological makeup that is not connected to our biology. And that's just the most stupid thing. Um, So gender studies, all this gender stuff needs to just disappear. So no, I'm not gender critical. I quite like my presentation as a female.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I think that the points you make there actually touch upon the issue, why the stuff about pronouns is so problematic. And this is another reason I've come around to the arguments that you've been making for a long time, which is that there is now incredible pressure on people to use particular pronouns, and we've had the recent scandal of Halifax and other banks you know boasting about the fact that they have these pronoun badges but of course a pronoun badge is not just a pronoun badge it's a declaration of a an almost religious belief because if you for example needed a badge saying "Hi, my name is Kelly and I'm she her. What you're really saying is, I believe in the idea that one can have a gendered soul and a biological representation, and that they might be slightly different. So it's actually buying into the entire uh, pseudo-religious belief of gendered souls and gender identity. So uh, that kind of pressure to use pronouns is really a pressure to genuflect, to The whole trans ideology. And I think that's a real problem. You mentioned there John Money. So, John Money was the Australian or New Zealand gender identity psychologist and theorist and generally problematic bloke. Uh, We don't need to talk about him in depth, but I do want to mention in relation to him the issue of children and what's happening to children. And it's one thing for women to be abused and harassed simply for having certain beliefs. And women have made a, have done a pretty good job of standing up to that and winning some important victories. But when we're talking about children being subjected to hormonal interventions and puberty blockers and pressure in the school place to use certain words and to uh, allow young boys into a girls changing area and so on, that's where it becomes really quite dark, doesn't it? And that's where it becomes actually incredibly important to stand up to this stuff.
0: Yeah, well, every month I do a an event at Speaker's Corner mm-hmm. and we get a really amazing range of women. And the last event, uh, which was the last Sunday in June, we had an 11-year-old girl who talked about her school's gender-neutral toilet. So in one point she can be next to a 16-year-old boy and it's, it's just disgusting. I mean, yeah. it, it, if we didn't use this language, then there's no way this would be happening. If mm. we stopped pretending that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, uh, I don't think half of this stuff would have happened. Uh, I mean, it goes back a little bit further than that. So they've had mixed sex toilets in some state schools for quite some time, like open toilets. And that's all to do with the lack of discipline. And that might come down to the fact that adults have really lost the room. Um, and teachers don't have as much respect. And we started allowing parents to tell teachers how to teach. Um, and it's been a whole, it's been a real slow kind of erosion of, um, discipline in schools, which is why somebody like, uh, Catherine, uh, running, is it Michaela in London is so vital. I think everybody, every teacher should have to go and do at least a term in her school before they're allowed to teach anywhere, to be honest. So th- the pronoun stuff and the, the way the schools have adopted this, I think it's just another clear marker of how they've forgotten that their main role is teaching. It's not social engineering. Uh, it's not circle time. It's not singing Kumbaya. It really is getting to the um, dirty work of educating the next generation in reading, writing, maths, history, geography, physics, et cetera, not in accepting the the latest doctrine. But then those teachers, half of them are very young. The younger they are, the cheaper they are. Uh, schools' budgets have been slashed. So they're getting younger, less experienced teachers. Those teachers, half the time, I said to one woman at an old school of one of my kids, how come you went into teaching? She goes, oh, I just love social justice. And I thought, how is that part <laughs> of why you want to teach? So I think we need kids back in the room. I think this, uh, ultimately, this is a failure of government. If they had more uh kahunis, um <laughs> balls, uh policy, rigid policy on this, I think schools would survive. There's a lot of teachers who don't know what they're doing at all, older teachers who think it's all a load of rubbish, but they're too frightened not to teach it. But when it comes to that gaslit child, mm-hmm. I think, look, there's many harms. There's the harm of being in a space that you don't feel safe in. That's pretty rubbish. There's a harm of not being able to use the loo all day because you're frightened of the space, the toilet at lunchtime or break time or whenever you need to use it. There's a harm of not being able to compete in your own school sports without there potentially being a boy in the changing room. This is, you know, for girls or even for boys. If there's a girl that's going to be playing rugby with them and then the boys can't really play rugby because they're frightened they're going to break this girl in two. But there's the bigger thing of the not being able to speak. And I think the psychological harm And the long-term impact of such things, of children not being able to name the thing in front of them that they can see with their own eyes, I think that is a profound harm that I think will reap some pretty nasty consequences for that particular generation.
1: How Woke One, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. I really agree with the The problem with the corrosion of discipline and control in schools, and uh, you mentioned Catherine Burblesing, who runs Michaela in in Wembley, which is a fantastic school. I've been lucky enough to visit it. Visit it. You know, she gets so much flack simply for having discipline in school, and I think one of the issues that one of the problems is that you have a situation now where teachers. Either can't maintain control over what children should be taught and so on, but also this growing trend for teachers to want to speak to children about things they shouldn't be speaking to children about, like some forms of sexual relations and the idea of gender fluidity. And if you look at libs of TikTok, this is far more pronounced problem in the US at the moment. You have a situation where teachers will often speak to children about being non-binary and what pronouns they use. I mean, really crazy ideological stuff that has no place at all in the classroom. Um, But just sticking with the children question for uh, one more question. Um, I just wanted to get your views on, The problem of, I think, what can be described as experimenting on children um, in terms of the drugs that some children are being given and the... Um, surgical procedures that are being given to not necessarily very young children, but certainly to older teenagers. This is something you've spoken about. This is something you've got in trouble for speaking about. Uh, This is something that you saw a lot of when you went to the US. There was a lot of controversy over one of your visits to the United States because you um, entered into a room in which there was a trans political operator and and you asked them what the hell was going on. But the broader point of your visit was to learn about some of the impact of this ideology on young people. So could you just talk a little bit about how destructive it can be for young people to fall under the spell of this worldview?
0: It's like something out of a novel, I think. It's so unbelievable Mm. that when you talk to people who don't know much about this ideology... I don't think, I think they think you're mad. I don't think they believe it. So in America, you could have a seven-year-old who, ma- the mother, and it's predominantly women that are encouraging their children to be trans. And I think that comes down to a uh, a bit of a Munchausen's by proxy or a woman not feeling like she's much of a hero in her own life. So she hasn't done much. So she then promotes this kid as gender non-conforming, but... You know, she she basically creates a trans child. It's, you know, it's the same as a vegan cat. We all know who's making the decisions, and it isn't a cat. <laughs> so you've got you've got these women then encouraging their kids. If the fathers don't go along with it, say they're divorced. If the fathers don't go along with it, uh, the father can have sort of injunctions against him to stop any involvement with that child. I think the same is happening happening in Canada, but they take these puberty blockers. There is a a woman called Dr. Olson Kennedy in California who brags about if if a 13-year-old girl gets her breast cut off, then, you know, if she changes her mind, she can, or he, as she would say, uh, can have them replaced. Mm -hmm. She advocates for giving eight-year-old girls testosterone so that they go through puberty at the right age. You know, if you give a kid puberty blockers, it's a nonsensical kind of idea that they will catch up with their puberty because you che- make these body changes the same time as your peers. Your brain is different. There are developmental things that happen in puberty, not just the obvious stuff, but the rest of it, the social impact, the way you feel about your peers and your parents and so on, that is a global experience. So we know it is a biological, essential um, episode in your life. Tied with your brain, Um, not just about sort of spritzing hair in various places or your voice deepening or whatever. It's all connected. Of course it is all connected. It would be stupid if it weren't. (laughs) So you can't catch up. What do you lose? You lose your sexual function. That means that you will never be sexually aroused as an adult if you go through puberty blockers. You will never be fertile. Uh, you will, you know, you will lose your fertility, but that doesn't matter because you won't actually have any sexual function or desire anyway. Uh, so you effectively you become a eunuch. Mm. You become a sexless vessel. Uh, who benefits from that? Well, uh, you could say that people who enjoy prepubescent bodies uh, benefit from kids not going through puberty. You could say that. Uh, there are other really evil things at work because I can't think of any good reason to do it at all. It doesn't make any sense. I rarely gave my kids cowpaw because I thought, which is like a liquid paracetamol, because I thought I don't really want them, I don't want them taking stuff unless it's absolutely essential. Mm. To then block a biological necessity like puberty blockers is just grotesque. I mean, I will correct you that the, the the reason for going to America was mainly to scoop up all the Nazi gold that was being (laughs) offered to me at the time. Uh, It wasn't just to, (laughs) I went in a room of parents, right? And in that room of parents, mostly Democrat voting parents, I felt so entitled about joining in when these women were in absolute bits Mm -hmm. and like my eyes were welling up and I thought, who the nurse do you think you are that you can't just take it when these women are talking about their grief and they grieve for the children that they've lost. Mm. I talk to mothers who will never hear their daughter's voices again because their daughters have taken testosterone and they simply don't sound the same. Mm. They'll never look at this like feminine face. They'll often, these girls absolutely hate their parents and their mothers and uh, have been sucked into a cult. You know, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing that more aptly explains what transgender ideology is uh, besides a cult.
1: Yeah, that's very well put and incredibly important points for people to think about. I I want to talk to you now for the remainder of the discussion about the kind of action you take and the kind of controversy it sometimes causes. So let's kick off with talking about the kind of action that you take and then we can talk about how feminists view... (laughs) Posy Parker <laughs> or the Posey Parker phenomenon. Um, so firstly, on the kind of action you take, I what I've always admired about the kind of action you take is that it's very direct. It doesn't pull its punches. It's it's direct action in the classical political sense. And I'm thinking of not only what you do with the Let Women Speak events uh, in Bristol and Manchester and other places and with what you do at Speaker's Corner very regularly, but also, for example, going to a swimming race uh, involving Leah Thomas, who is the six foot four man who claims to be a woman who is depriving actual women off medals in in swimming you went to one of his races and you said things while he was I think you might have said he's a man or something like that, but just explain to us why you think that kind of action is important, even if it winds people up, which of course at times it will
0: it did wind people up a lot <laughs> um so as Leah Thomas was accepting was being interviewed america i mean it's big business if I don't think we understand just how much money is involved even in like you know, university swim meets over there but there were like cameras and there's TV crews and uh there's a, in that sort of university team there's there's tens of people all supporting these swimmers and uh as he was talking about his race I just shouted he's a man um <laughs> twice uh and I called him a cheat yeah. when he walked under the thing I feel it's important to break the silence because everybody else is thinking it. Someone needs to say it. Because if somebody says it, then somebody else will feel that they can too. And I'm quite happy to be that person. I don't care about the scorn um, or the criticism I get. If one more person in that room thinks, hey, I can say that, uh, then I think it's worthwhile every single time. It's just about... It's a very well-used analogy, but it is really about saying that emperor is naked. No, he's not wearing any clothes. Come on, everybody. We all know it. Uh, Just somebody needs to break the silence. (laughs) I mean, the other thing that that happened is I had Madeline Kearns with me, Mm. who I absolutely adore, who writes for the National Review, Mm. and she just cropped a nice little clip of me talking to a trans activist uh, who was female, who basically said... Uh, Are you a biologist? I was like, he doesn't have female organs. He's, I'm a woman. He's not a woman. And she says, Are you a biologist? And I said, Well, you know, I'm not a vet, but I know what a dog is, Uh, (laughs) which was a great line, even if I do say so myself. (laughs) And it seemed to capture, it captured everything in just like a short sentence because it is ludicrous. The criticism I get, predominantly from feminists it's a bit like oh you're so badly behaved you really need to keep in line um how dare you go and just speak directly to people as opposed to run it by us to see if the optics are correct and I just think look to be slightly irreverent I don't care how long these women have been going at it they haven't won at all They've watched while we've lost ground. Why on earth should I have to run anything by them? I'm just not doing it. I want to win. And I think winning means telling as many people as possible, which is direct action works. I could write a blog. I mean, it probably wouldn't be very coherent, but I could write a long blog with like seven paragraphs just to say, he's a man. And he's a man just cuts through it all in a way that... Ontological arguments don't and philosophical arguments don't. And eventually what happens to those women is they see that I was pretty much right all along. <laughs> and then it all comes to a point where, you know, I, the object of everything I do is to tell people what's happening because I know that they will think it's ridiculous, nonsensical, ludicrous, um, totalitarian, fascistic a terrible authoritarian load of bull. And so that's all I'm interested in doing. That's why direct action works. That's why getting stories in the paper works. That's why talking to people in a way that they can fully comprehend without having to look up what I'm saying in some sort of thesaurus or dictionary, Um, aside from the word woman, where apparently uh, the dictionary is still terribly transphobic.
1: I agree with everything you've just said. And I think one of the things that is important about what you do and what your comrades do, to use an old fashioned word, is that you have built a new movement of, I hate this word, but I don't know what else to say, a new movement of ordinary women Mm. who speak plainly and who understand what is at stake and they don't have to have read bell hooks, and they don't have to have gone to university for five years. I'm not dissing people who do go to university for five years, but there is a plainness and a universalism and an urgency to this issue, which means that I think often everyday people grasp what's at stake in an even keener way than some people in the establishment and some people who've done too much cultural studies, too much queer studies, too much media studies. But I I do want to put to you, I'm going to name some names now. So I don't know if if that's something you want to take part in, but something interesting has happened with your work over the past few weeks, which is that it has sparked a broader debate within the TERF movement or the gender critical movement about whether what you do is good or bad. And so after the Bristol incident where a a mob of misogynists attacked you or or abused you. It was very striking that Kathleen Stock, who's the author of uh, Material Girls, I've had her on this podcast. I think she's a really interesting voice. She said she admires your work. And it was like a confession almost. I'm coming out, (laughs) I'm telling you, I'm sorry, I admire Posey Parker's work. So you have her saying that, and other people have said similar. And then you have people like Julie Bindle and Suzanne Moore who are less admiring of your work and who historically have said things about you that are quite rude and also not true. So I think it was Julie Bindle who called you a thick fuck. Um, Mm. Excuse my language. And I think it may have been Suzanne Moore who said that you were racist. I mean, really uh, horrible stuff that's also not true. So what do you make of those kinds of discussions? When you, when it comes to people like Moore and, and, and Bindle, both of whom I think are admirable on this issue, do you think it is simply that you are this rather ordinary person who seems to be invading their more intellectual, refined space in which they've been developing these arguments as they see it for a long time, and that you've kind of bust in with... A clearer view of what's at stake that's won over large numbers of people. is there a kind of political envy to this, or is there a kind of desire to guard the right way of feminist thinking from the wrong way of uh womanist thinking? What do you think is going on with those kinds of tussles within the gender critical movement about the work that you do
0: i mean women as old as time have been pretty mean <laughs> to other women um Julie Birchall recently said, it's like the mean girls versus the keen girls, which I loved very, very much. I admire that woman greatly. There is a, with Julie Bindle, who is an exceptional campaigner, and I think her and I would actually get along Mm. if we met. Mm. I sort of always think that she's, you know, she's relatively abrasive, but she's done some incredible work. I'm always a little bit surprised when she stoops and lowers herself to say something quite so personal, I think it really doesn't do any justice to the incredible amount of work she's done uh, mm. for women. Uh, I also think she's mistaken that just because I don't have a northern accent, I didn't grow up in a working class household, yeah. and I think that is something that mm-hmm. you know, if I was if I was a little bit more broad with a regional accent, maybe I would get away with actually revealing my past. So I think there's a little bit of that. I think she might have fallen into the idea of where some of the women have totally monstered me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it might be easier to believe that. But the personal things I just think just says more about her than me. Some people have said before, do you think it's envy? I don't think it is. I think I'm very much more hardline than Bindle has been in public Mm -hmm. or more. I mean, I don't know. I'm... I'm embarrassed to say I don't think I've ever read anything by Suzanne Moore, more than a couple of paragraphs. And I have seen her use true trans style language, which means she might talk about trans being an actual thing. I don't think it is. Um, I know Judy Bindle has called a man sister. Yeah, That is certainly something that I would never do. So I do think it's more about themselves when they attack me than it really is about me. And I feel the same way about people who highly praise me, who don't really know me at all. Uh, I'll take praise from my husband and my kids and those that are close to me because they do know the whole thing. Often people say the most incredibly lovely, generous things about me, and it must happen to you all the time as well, Brendan. And you think, well, that's really great, but you don't really know me. So I'll just take it. <laughs> I'll just take that you're actually saying something that you need or projecting something onto me that you need me to have. Um, and I feel it's the same when people are really quite critical. But for Kathleen to come out and say that I was really very moved. I think the way she was treated in this country um, mm-hmm. by the lack of support with her university and those that should have been grown up and the terrible way she was treated at that university, was. Uh, just horrendous just horrendous and I did often offer words of support but you know they all come round eventually Brendan it's um I believe it's my milkshake um (laughs) which is it came from Manchester when they were anyway it's an in joke with myself and I have a horrible feeling that actually that song means something really crude now (laughs) I just said it
1: I'm I'm so
0: sorry I'm
1: sure it does (laughs) Yes, I completely agree uh, about Kathleen Stock. And I think she has had such incredible poise. I don't know if that's a sexist word to use these days, but incredible poise and resolve during a time when she was being hounded by very, very nasty people at her university in Sussex. And um, her book also is very, very good. And people can listen to my conversation with her on this podcast where I talked about the ideas in her book. Just one more thing on this is the... um, I think what's interesting about people like Suzanne Moore, I mean, the, one of the few times Suzanne Moore has ever mentioned me is, is she said she wanted to vomit on me. So, you know, this is often not a high level of discussion, sadly. Uh, you know, I would like to have a higher level of discussion sometimes. But I think there's there's an element where there's almost a protectionist Vibe to some of this, I think, and I, I did, my personal view is that you are more radical than uh, some of these uh, women, particularly Suzanne Moore and, and Julie Bindle, are on these issues. You are more, I think, clear-cut about the language you will use and the language you won't use. I was really surprised in a in an article in the critic that Julie Bindle couldn't bring herself to refer to Grace Lavery as she but also refused to refer to him as he, and instead compromised by calling him they. And this is a man, and I read a review of his book, and it's a horrible, horrible book. So I was surprised by that kind of uh, language used by Bindle. And I think, I think possibly what the reason you scare them is because you have that kind of clarity and that refusal to buckle, and i think it there's an element where it might expose their reluctance to have that clarity and and they might feel slightly compromised by that but i just just the final question on this is how much of an issue do you think this is like do you think turf island as as britain is is brilliantly referred to could it be broken apart by this is there just no possibility of a broader solidarity on these issues because of of these conflicts or or is this a, a minor media spat how do how do you see it
0: oh i think i, I don't think it's a minor media mm. spat i think it's um i mean look the divisions between me and other women and the things that are said about me are grotesque are, are awful um are, you know associating me with the far right yeah. Yeah. with the christian right as if like christ as if christians in america are somehow the worst scourge yeah. on america that ever existed i just find That quite interesting when those same women will defend other more misogynistic, I would say, religions like Islam. I find that just quite intriguing. Um, And I think that says more about their own views of race and their own views of uh, white supremacy, which they apparently attack, but seem to sort of sit quite comfortably in this kind of, as a white savior, I can save the Muslims and I can blame the white Christians. So I think that says something about them. So I don't think I don't think it can break Britain. I think we are. I, you know you asked me at the beginning is the tide turning? I think yes, it is. It's going to take a while. I think schools need. I mean, there was a debate yesterday in Parliament or in one of the committee rooms where Miriam Cates, uh, a Tory MP, has really talked about what the hell we're teaching in PSHE. Uh, that now is. Is under the uh, guidance of a children's minister. I think once we can come up with something really solid on that, I think we'll see this evaporating a little bit quickly. I think globalism and corporate entities—they uh, basically need to—they need to look at their shareholder dividends. I mean, clearly nobody really, clearly nobody at BMW or Barclays Bank really gives a shiny rat's ass about. <laughs> Whether or not someone's gay or trans or straight or whatever, you know, until those companies have got the best maternity policies and uh, inclusion of people with disabilities, I don't believe a damn thing they say. Until Halifax Bank no longer sees somebody out of work and takes their house away from them or charges them an infinite amount for an overdraft, I don't believe a word they say about caring about anybody So until that happens, also the same goes for train companies until they've made their platforms accessible for people in wheelchairs. Mm. No, no, no. I'm not taking any inclusion or diversity nonsense from them either. So somebody needs to realize somewhere, some shareholder that actually they're going to get fewer dividends if they carry on with this woke nonsense. So those are the things, those are the people that, that still have influence, but it, it's get it out of schools, get it out anything state funded. We have to put an end to this immediately. Everywhere else I can f- vote with my feet. If I don't like the Halifax, I don't have to have a bank, uh, a bank account with them or a mortgage or whatever. But I don't have a choice. Some people have no choice about whether or not they use uh, the NHS or whether or not they send their kids to school. But my message to parents is you are the best advocate for your children. You must go into schools and ask to see their PSHE program, the Reclaim Party, Uh, whatever you think of them, it doesn't really matter. They've made a really good film on this. Um, But yeah, do find out what is being taught at your children's school. Nobody else loves your children like you do. Nobody.
1: I think that's a very good point. And I think what you've said there really touches upon something I've been thinking about, which is the extent to which identity politics has really kind of destroyed the left. And you mentioned there the fact that you are sometimes demonised as someone who associates with a Christian right, but then you're also demonised for criticising misogyny in Islam. And I just think to myself, if you're a left winger, as some of these people who attack you claim to be, And you're happy to criticise misogyny when it manifests in the Christian religion, but you're reluctant to criticise it when it manifests in the Islamic religion, where it tends to be far worse, certainly in in the West, then you are exercising a racial double standard. And this is where you really realise, and I think one of the things I've been thinking is that one of the problems with gender critical feminism is that it hasn't fully cut loose from the politics of identity and i think until it fully cuts loose from the politics of identity it will make great gains and great insights as it has been doing and i've engaged with those and and had my mind changed by some of that i think until it really makes a break with that politics it's it's going to always be slightly dragged back from realizing that the problem here is a pretty large one okay Kelly, my final question for you, which you may have already answered, but we'll see. What comes next for you and your movement? And what are you planning? You don't necessarily have to name dates and places because otherwise every misogynist in the country will turn up. But what are your plans going ahead in terms of really taking the argument even further and driving the final nails into the coffin of this problematic ideology.
0: Well, I am going to Brighton on the 18th of September, (laughs) so that should be so much fun. Um, There's a lot of older gay and lesbian actually coming to that because they're fed up with their movement being co-opted by a load of straight men um, in dresses. So that should be good. I think that America is, we have to take this and destroy the very nub of all of this, uh, this is where it's all coming from. This is where the tech people are. This is where it's genuinely destroying hundreds, if not thousands of children's bodies on a daily basis. So America is the is the place. I think Standing for Women, we've now got local groups. So um, we've got over 100 local entities so that they can fight things in their local area that are really relevant to them. We've got quite a lot going on in the United States so it it really is that it's, it's just until we destroy the culture of this, the GRA is something else I want to totally mm-hmm. obliterate. I think it's a nonsensical legal fiction. I don't see why any, in a tolerant society, we don't need somebody to be called the opposite sex in law. And also what that did is it opened doors for men in women's spaces, yeah. men in women's prisons, men in women's sports. Without that sort of fundamental foundation of which most of this now stands, uh, I think we could lose it a lot quicker. I, I don't see why anybody should have their birth certificate or passport changed. It's not, it's not really any of their business to change a birth yeah. certificate. So I'd like to see that completely eradicated. Um, and then nobody will be compelled to use language that they don't believe. So that's where we're heading. So repeal the GRA. Um, Let's pretend it never existed. And um, let's go to America and uh, destroy the very nucleus of all of this nonsense.
1: Kelly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.